On this episode of the Oklahoma Breakdown with Eichert and Lehman, we dive right into local college football news with it being three years since Lincoln Riley was named head coach at Oklahoma. We talk about what Joe Castiglione said about seating capacity this week. We break down the big national stories in college football. Bama players testing positive for coronavirus, the culture at Iowa, and how more and more college football players are starting to speak up on issues and what that could mean for the sport moving forward. And football guys talking basketball, we look at the ridiculous sanctions Oklahoma State basketball received from the NCAA. We give you our winners and losers of the weekend and highlight the Dead Center Film Festival in keeping it local. As always, we finish with your Twitter questions. Please download and subscribe to the podcast, rate it five stars and write us a good review. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search Oklahoma Breakdown on any of those and you'll find us. All right, our man Michael Ossie will kick this thing off. It's time for the Oklahoma Breakdown. It's a beautiful Monday, June 8th. Now we're recording this on Sunday night. Hope you all had a great weekend. Full disclosure, Teddy and I were both very, very hungover for the majority of today, but we have recovered properly to bring you another dynamic episode of the Oklahoma Breakdown with Iker I just got to say, in, in my case at least, uh, in this has happened several times. I was overserved. Not my fault. Um, I was you realize home, but still you, somehow I was overserved. You are overserving yourself. You realize that you, you can't complain when you're the one shoving it down your own face. Okay. Well, I was I was trying to uh, take the responsibility off my own hands, but uh, I failed. Are you all right? I, I know it was rough earlier today. It it was rough. Um, I, my wife finally got me moving, got me out of the house. Um, we had some more neighbors come over to the pool today, and I think that drug me out of the uh, out of the depths of the hangover. So I think I'm good to go. I had to choke down a hair of the dog uh, beverage. I think that made me feel a little bit better. So I'm good to go. Well, I'm glad because we need you. Uh, we need you for this whole operation. But but Full I speed. know. I know what will make you feel a lot better, and that's talking about some local college football news. How's that yes. sound, Ted? Let's do it. Let's do so, it. So Lincoln Riley was named the Oklahoma head football coach three years ago. I, when I saw that, I almost couldn't believe it. I, I, can't, I can't decide if it feels like it's been like 10 years or if it feels like it's been like a year. I, I think it's, I mean, for me, it seems like it's been 10 years. And I'll tell you what's, what's crazy about Lincoln. Since he's taken over, he has not had one normal year, not one normal offseason. The very first year he takes over in June, not long after that, they announced, 
or maybe it was right before, right around the same time they announced the early signing period. So he takes over as head coach, and it's like all of a sudden they've got to change their whole scheduling or their whole recruiting schedule to fit this new early signing period while he's trying to transition to be a head coach. So that was tough. And then you go into the next offseason, and they change the spring recruiting schedule to where they can host official visits in the spring. Um, you know, they've had one incident after another. Now this, this spring, obviously, is the, the coronavirus situation and what all is, is going on as they move into the, into the summer and fall with, with the different summer workout schedule and what's this season going to look like, what's this uh, training camp going to look like. So it's been anything but ordinary for Lincoln Riley in those three years. It, and now you, you throw the protests that a lot of his players are involved in on top of all of that. And, yeah, it, it's been a pretty interesting three years for Lincoln Riley, but three years with a lot of success. I, I know he hasn't gotten to the college football playoff in one yet, but – Three trips to the college football playoff, three Big 12 titles, a lot of impressive offense. You've got the two Heisman Trophy winners with Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray, and then a Heisman Trophy runner-up for Jalen Hurts. The guy the bar is kind of high, huh? Yeah, that's a that's a hot start. Uh, by by most definitions, I would say that's a hot start. So hot, in fact, that uh, John Hoover for SI.com put this out there. Lincoln Riley has won more games in the first three years, 36, than any coach since Walter Camp and George Woodruff. That was back in 1890 and 1894, Ted. <laughs> it's crazy, man. It really is. And you look at some of the, some of the 10 years here at Oklahoma, um, Wilkinson, uh, Switzer, Stoops all had like – really good successful starts I think I think coach Switzer's first season he was undefeated and they just had a tie in there um so yeah man it's been it's about as good as you could ever ask for obviously um our fans this is what makes this program great would say well it ain't that great where's our national championship so uh um, touche fans <laughs> touche he, he set the bar incredibly high um you know which is what you want at this program and you know, that's that's the new expectation. I guess it's not new. That's always been the expectation. Uh, but we got people asking, when are we going to get over the hump? And I, I feel like we're we're actually getting close. I wouldn't necessarily say this coming year would be the year, but the year following, like the 2021 year, I mean, if you look at things right now, that's ramping up to be – a shot where Oklahoma can make a serious run at a championship. So I'd say Lincoln through three years has put this program in premier position to, to chase down a championship. Yeah. Now it's his program, right? It's got his fingerprints all over it. He's got Benny Wiley in as his strength and conditioning coordinator. Now he's got Alex Grinch running his defense. They've been recruiting at a high level on the offensive side of the ball. It seems like that is starting to trickle over onto the defensive side of the football. And Lincoln Riley made it clear a couple of years ago in the locker room after that loss to Alabama in the Orange Bowl that they were a couple of years away. He knew that. I heard him say it. You know, we're a couple of years away from raising that skinny trophy. And I, 
I know the Peach Bowl didn't go well, and it it wasn't competitive, but I think he is building something, and he knows. He knew he wasn't going to be able to do it overnight, and it's slow, and I know it's hard to have patience for the OU fan base, but when your 36-year-old head coach has 36 wins in his first three seasons, you got to feel pretty damn fortunate as an Oklahoma football fan or as someone covering the team, Teddy. Hey, there's no doubt about that. It's a great team to cover. And, you know, just the positioning. I thought the, you know, whenever Baker and Kyler were gone, getting Jalen Hurts in was critical to to keep that, to keep it rolling, right, to where there wasn't much fall off is, uh, you know, was – was Jalen Hurts the best quarterback in the country? No, but he was he was really good at bridging the gap between a couple of Heisman Trophy winners and really Lincoln's biggest quarterback recruit that, that he's taken in with Spencer Rattler. So um, we've got that gearing up. And you think about this year, we're going to have a most likely redshirt freshman taking over at quarterback. You know, and there's going to be some growing pains there, I'm sure. He's going to put up great numbers. Our offense is going to be completely fine. I'm not worried about that. Um, but, you know, there's, there's going to be some growing pains there. You think about the next season with Grinch's defensive recruits and the guys that they've identified for this system starting to work into the roster, work into the depth chart. They're going to get some better depth on the back end, get some defensive linemen, some pass rushers up there, the linebackers up. Uh, situations a lot better 2021 you're going to have Rattler going into his second year third year on campus Clemson's going to be breaking in a new quarterback Ohio State's going to be breaking in a new quarterback Alabama is either going to be breaking in a new quarterback or um, I I mean that's what I would I would think I think Mac Jones is going to get them kind of bridge the gap between Tua and the the what is it the Bryce is it young young Bryce young kid uh, who's supposed to be really good. So, I mean, that 2021 season, at least if you look at it from right now, maybe, you know, things will change by that time. But right now, I think that's that's the year you're looking at it and you have to feel like, honestly, we got a legitimate shot at a national championship. You're skipping the 2020 season. Ted, what the hell are you doing right now? It. What do you think? Oh, you fans are all of a sudden just going to be like, you know what? We're ready for 2021. Let's forget about this year. We'll lose a couple games. It'll all be fine. Come on, man. You know how these people work. Here's how, and I laugh about this every year because here's how it works. So uh, I thought last year with Cleveland, like the last two years with the Cleveland Browns was the perfect example. You draft a quarterback number one overall, and it's like, hey, three-year plan. First year, we'll rotate him in, get him some time. The second year, the goal is to maybe try and get to eight and eight. The third year is that's the year we're going to try and make the playoffs. Well, Baker comes in at the end of year one and looks good. It's like, let's skip all the other steps. And in year two, let's go win the Super Bowl. And that's how the fans look at it. So the, the expectations always change. So we're going to go into this season. Okay, we got a red shirt, quarter, uh, red shirt freshman quarterback. You know, he's working himself into this thing. This year, you know, we got a chance. Obviously, we should win the Big 12. Uh, We should be, you know, a one-loss team with a good opportunity to make the college football playoff. I mean, that's that's a realistic expectation with our schedule. But, you know, Gabe, you're 
three or four games in, offense is clicking. It's like, here we go, baby. National championship or bust. So the expectations in August never match what they are in November, ever. Of never. course they don't. Now, one thing in this, you know, these first three years for Lincoln Riley, he has shown an ability to connect to players. And I, I do think that that is one of the things, other than being maybe the best offensive mind in all of football at any level, other than that, his ability to relate to these guys and to use that in recruiting. But even in these last couple of weeks, in these last couple of months, I think his stance on the coronavirus stuff and being cautious uh, was a reflection of the leadership at OU, but also a reflection of what he was hearing from his players and what he knows parents think. So I, I think that shaped part of his stance on that entire issue. Uh, I think you've seen great leadership from him through the protests that have popped up around the country, just showing support for his guys. Now he also said, hey, this is just one of my beliefs, uh, right? But his ability to connect to these young kids is a huge advantage for Oklahoma. And still only 36 years old, I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. They've completely dominated this conference. And I understand what you're saying looking ahead to that 2021 year, especially when you know that Alex Grinch likes a lot of the talent they're bringing in the defensive side of the ball, but those guys didn't get to come in early and go through spring ball and go through all those workouts. Like you said earlier, Ted, it was, it, this off season has not been normal. Those guys will be behind where they wanted them to be. And that will slow them down getting onto the field in the fall. But the future's bright. The future's bright. I know OU fans, they, they want to put another year up on that stadium, right? That, that's what it's all about. I get it. But you just have to feel very, very fortunate where the program is right now because Lincoln Riley, he's here to stay, and it, it seems like things are only going to get better. And that is a, that is a really good feeling uh, for, for an alum like me. Uh, I feel I feel very comfortable where the program's at. Well, especially making it through this off season, like through January, right? Because the worry was, oh man, you know, Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys' job is finally going to come open. Man, there's been a ton of rumors there. If he's ever going to take a job, this would be the one that he takes. So it was it was a scary off season, you know. But he's here. I don't – I mean, the only thing that would worry you would be Lincoln Riley taking another job. In college football, that's not going to happen, okay? There's nowhere else that he's going to go over, over Oklahoma. And in the NFL, I mean, there's only a handful of like, – he's not going to go take the Cleveland Browns job. He's not going to go take the Jets job or – you know what I'm saying? It's like there, there's maybe – like I thought Dallas would probably be the only one, and he didn't take that. And I'm sure if he wanted it, he could have made a ton of money to be the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, and he's still here. So that pretty much, to me, seals it that Lincoln Riley's not going to the NFL, at least not for a long time. Yep, but three years under his belt, 
as the head coach at Oklahoma, and I would assume a lot more in his future. Uh, speaking of the future, we've talked a lot about seating capacity, right? And how many fans are going to be in the stands when the fall rolls around. Joe Castiglione talked to our man Toby Rowland on Friday about seating capacity and the ability to bring fans to games. And if seating capacity is limited, what might that look like? And it looks exactly the way we told people it would look, Ted, because Joe Castiglione comes out and he says they'll use the system. If they have to limit seating capacity, they'll use the system they use for OU Texas and for bowl games. And that is based on, quote, longevity association with programs both as season ticket holders and donors so it sounds like if capacity is limited for whatever reason it's going to depend on how long you've been a season ticket holder and the donations that you give and i know that that will make some people upset i understand but that's how it's going to be across the country. That, that's how it's going to be across the country. We talked about what Iowa State is doing. This is how I'm expecting every big-time college football program to operate if you end up having limited capacity because of the coronavirus. No, I, I agree. Um, that's kind of how they have to do it. Now, I'll say this again. I always have to put this disclaimer out there that I still believe we're going to be playing football in stadiums that are 100% capacity. But if I we're not – I really hope you're right. That would I make so me too. very happy. We're still a long ways away. We're 90-some days away from, from kicking this thing off and, um, you know, things continue to improve. So that's, that's still my guess and my hope. But if it does get to a, a case where we've got to do um, the situation that you just broke down, that's how I expect it to be. That's what um, – I, I wasn't surprised at all when Josie said that. But here's my thing. You know, you want to take care of the, the, the long-term uh, long season ticket holders for sure. You want to take care of the people that donate money to your program. But at the same time, I, I, it's worrisome especially if you look at it across the country that people that don't have the, the financial means to purchase season tickets or to donate to the program, but are still big fans and still want to go see a game. Like I hope they like, I hope they set aside some amount of tickets that, that people can purchase and maybe you'll be able to purchase some on the open market or from season ticket holders that aren't going, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people that can go to one game a year with, with right. their, they got two or three kids and to not have the ability at all to go see. I mean, that, you know, longtime season ticket holders are great. And it's really it's the it's the foundation of your program and of your fan base. But you also got to keep new fans, keep keep reaching out to the younger generation and new fans and. And that's a lot of people that trying to get their kids in to see this team for the first time. So hopefully if we have to go down this road with a limited capacity, they still open it up to where people that, you know, 
just don't have the financial means to be able to stroke a big check for season tickets or for donations still have an opportunity to see this team play in person. Yeah. Yeah. Especially you, you know how much that one game can mean to someone when they can actually go to that game, when they can afford to when they can only afford maybe tickets to one game a year and just how meaningful that trip is for them and their family. You would hate for that to go away. You really would, but you could end up in a situation where the university, I mean, in all these universities across country don't really have a choice. Now, if there is limited seating capacity, I don't know what strategy they're going to go with. Um, I'm sure there's like an algorithm or there's a, I know they've been doing all the modeling. I'm sure there's a program that can space people properly and all that stuff. Maybe you end up putting people in pockets with people they know, like their friends that they're comfortable being around something like that. I, I don't know. It'll be fascinating if it happens. Ted, I hope you're right though. I hope that, you know, the coronavirus and we're, we're in a great place as a country and all the curves have taken a big downturn and all that stuff so that all these stadiums across college football be full, but uh, we just don't know. And not only do we not know, but Joe Castiglione said that he's not really sure whose call it is ultimately to determine seating capacity. I mean, he, he said it. So that's where some of that confusion creeps in. Like, is it Governor Stitt's call? Is it Joe Harris's call? Is Joe Castiglione ultimately the guy that makes the call? Like, the fact that the athletic director doesn't exactly know doesn't bring me a lot of peace of mind when this decision needs to be made. And when does this decision need to be made? It seems like it needs to be made soon, Ted. Yeah, well – at the end of the day, the final say is going to be the people issuing the tickets. You know, the governor can say, all right, I'm opening up the state for all, you know, stadium capacity for live events. We're good to go. We're, I'm, I'm opening it up. Okay. That's the first part of it. But, you know, that doesn't mean the, the university has to issue every ticket that they've got for every seat if they still don't feel like it's safe. So at the end of the day, the call is going to be made by them. So, um, you know, they're probably waiting for the proper chain, you know, to come down from the top. But uh, at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be issuing the tickets. So um, as long as the call, the clear has been made by the governor, who I assume is, is going to do it first with the phased reopening and, you know, declare everything back to, back to normal or however you want to uh, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, the university is issuing the tickets and they are going to have the ultimate final say on the capacity of the stadium. Yeah. And once again, let's hope it's full, baby. There's nothing better than a game day with a full stadium. I hope everyone gets that experience. Now one stadium that we know will be at least half full as of now is the Cotton Bowl because Texas Governor Greg Abbott came out and said that athletic stadiums in the state of Texas can seat 50% capacity. You know, that's of now. There's a long time between now and OU Texas in the Cotton Bowl. 
But theoretically, with this latest development with Greg Abbott, that means OU Texas could have over 46,000 people. I'm sure that those people will stay socially distanced and they won't mingle at all and they won't yell at each other, especially at the 50-yard line. It'll be fine, Ted. Sticking 46,000 people in that building, it'll fi- nothing bad will happen. It'll be fine. Um, fascinating. The whole thing is, 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 is interesting. The governor of Texas, which, by the way, you know, he declared 25% capacity is like 10 days ago, right? He changed that tune real quick. Right. So I would imagine that as long as they keep hitting whatever marks that they've put in place as far as um, active cases or new cases or whatever threshold it is that they're, they're looking at, um, probably update that pretty quickly, I would guess. Or um, like I said, we're still 90-some days out. Uh, well, from this game, we're more than 90 days. We're a ways out. So, um, yeah. I mean, and that's another thing we got to talk about is game one, game three may be under some type of restriction, but maybe later in the season we're not. Or on the flip side, um, we may not have restrictions early on, but later if there's a new spike, we may go with restrictions at that point. So it's one of those things where – you know, you got a plan, but you better be prepared for that plan to change at some point in time throughout the season. So it's all pretty good. Um, it's just funny. I was thinking about it. You know, the uh, Big 12 commissioner called it the Petri dish down there. So I was wondering, you think T. Rowe is going to do his uh, traditional, here we go, live from the Petri dish in Dallas, Texas. That, that would what- be amazing (laughs) please yeah we i feel like we can get him to do that right probably probably we'll peer peer pressure him i will bribe him with food here's what we got to do we can at least get get him to do one jokingly record it and then patch it in over the top of his uh, actual call during the game we can definitely do that we'll make that happen (laughs) for sure and one update on the State Fair of Texas, which clearly a lot of people are wondering, is that going to be going on around that game? Well, they have reached out for feedback on how they can plan and execute a safe event this year. The organizers of the State Fair, they said, hey, we're still planning on it going down September 25th through October 14th, but they're going to have some safety measures, and they've actually put out a survey that guests can fill out and possibly win an Amazon gift card if you do it. So if you're an OU fan, I I think they're only asking Texans for their opinion, but we've got a lot of people in Dallas that listen to this podcast. So maybe go find that survey and let them know that just, just make sure the corn dogs are there. Right. Like I, I I think we could probably, I, I wouldn't be terribly upset if there was less people. I think the day that game is played, only people going to the game should be allowed to go to the fair. I've always felt that way. The psychopaths that show up and didn't know the game was going on blow my mind every year. They're looking around like, what's going on? Why are there so Why many people the wearing this so bad? bed? Yeah. No, I'm with you. And I've heard that suggestion as well, that in order to get into the fair on that day, you've got to have an actual game ticket. That would be awesome. I mean, if, if, if it takes a coronavirus to get that done and we can implement that every year. Well I'm worth like, it. Well worth let's it. Go. Let's go. Traffic, but, everything, the whole situation would be better. 
but yeah, it seems like things are trending in a positive direction, certainly for fans to be in the stands. But as you saw with Greg Abbott there in the state of Texas, 25% turned into 50% real quick. So we'll see if that trend continues. Now, Ted, let's move on to the biggest stories um, on the national scene in college football. And let's start with our good friends at Alabama, where apparently they, maybe they listen to this podcast, Teddy, because on, on the last episode, you said that you would be a horrible college football coach because you would just get your kids all in one room and make them all give each other the coronavirus. That was, that was your strategy, uh, which some people probably agreed with, and I think a lot of people frowned upon. They were like, that's a bad idea. And I agree with those people. But Alabama took it literally, huh? I Al- like it. Alabama's players, they came back to Tuscaloosa. They got tested. But before they got their results, a group workout was organized by the players. There were 50 guys. 50 guys, and they're working out on the band field, which is hilarious. But it turns out five guys tested positive. Teddy, they didn't even wait for the test results. What are we doing? Alabama, you got to love the work ethic. Their goal is to lead the NCAA NCAA in antibodies uh, for the coronavirus. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to – everyone get it right away no i this is it's it's interesting which you just said to wait one day one day and last week you pointed out i think you made the statement that college football is relying on 18 to 22 year old guys to be accountable the accountability of those guys to make good decisions for their health and well-being this is exactly the point that i'm trying to make about OU's quarantine like these are guys that are already on campus that are right there in the university's back pocket you know they're they're right there they've done their testing and still they they don't you know hold to the quarantine or whatever the 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 rules that have been laid out out there and even if somebody didn't tell them wait for your test results anybody with any type of, uh, of decent logic or common sense would understand that I've got tending pest, uh, pending test results. I better wait to see whether or not I've got it before I go do anything, right? That I, is like the most commonsensical thing you could ever imagine. It blew my mind when I saw this report. I was like, they literally had to wait one day. What does that say about the leadership of that team? Now, once again, they're going to be really damn good because they've got incredible players and the best college football coach ever. They're going to be really good. Not worried about them. But you don't have enough leadership on your team for a couple guys to speak up and go, guys, I think we should wait till we get the damn test results. (laughs) It was just unbelievably stupid now. The guys are all asymptomatic, and hopefully this is a whole bunch of nothing for Alabama football. But now those five guys clearly can't start on Monday with voluntary workouts, and anyone they came in close contact with 
has to quarantine now. All they had to do. So not waiting one day could cost a bunch of guys two weeks who didn't need that time. I mean, they, they tested negative, but now that they've been around, they've got to sit and wait and see what happens. It's just ridiculously dumb in my opinion. Yeah. And if stuff like that is going to continue to happen. It's going to happen. Well, OU has a, uh, they have a 14 day virtual quarantine, however, whatever they're, they're calling it. It's basically an honor system quarantine. I mean, here we've got guys on campus who just got administered or administered a test by the athletic department and they, they still don't follow basic guidelines. So I don't trust at all that we're going to get anywhere near a hundred percent follow through on the virtual quarantine of, of our guys. You know, not that in the grand scheme of things, it really is going to matter, but um, you know, it's just, it's, th this is how it's going to be. As all these teams start transitioning back over the next week, two weeks, three weeks, we're going to hear more and more stuff just like this. And hopefully this happened early enough at Alabama that everyone else around the country can say, look at how dumb this was and look at what it might cost them. Just please listen to us. Just don't do that. Just wait till you get the test results. And that way, guys that don't need to be quarantined that test negative. We don't have to do the whole contact tracing thing and, you know, be cautious about it and make you miss an entire week or two. Like it's, it's just common sense. But here's, the, here's the thing I'm thinking about. If, if that whole stunt ends up costing a majority of Alabama's team or maybe those 50 guys that were in that workout um, two weeks of off season, are we going to have to put a, protective order in place for the band director at Alabama for allowing those guys onto the field. Oh the, my gosh. Is Nick Saban going to come after the band director or whoever gave them the I, okay for that? I don't know if the band director had to okay them using the field, but we knew they this should was have been there happen. to stop them. Where were you? Why didn't you stop them? Why wasn't the band on the field? Well, coach, we're not allowed back on campus yet. Only the football players are. I don't care. I, it's just, it's just so stupid to me. Uh, all right, Ted, another big story nationally in college football. The culture at Iowa uh, seems less than stable at the moment uh, because Iowa's head strength coach, Chris Doyle, who is the highest paid strength coach in the country, has been placed on administrative leave pending an independent review because several former players that are black came out with stories about him making let's go with racially insensitive statements um now a lot of these you know he one of them he him asking a guy if he you know if he gang bangs during the off season and i don't mean the old school show up at your door i'm here for the gang bang type gang bang i mean like <laughs> gang activity um, just a lot of you know, probably you know, distasteful and subtly racist comments that he was making to his players. And a bunch of these former players have told similar stories. 15 in, in total have come out and said at least something. And then Chris Doyle 
issues a statement which seems like an apology on Sunday, and then all of a sudden it takes a turn from I'm gonna work, I'm gonna learn from all of this, and then he says, Oh, yeah, by the way, I didn't say anything racist, I didn't do anything wrong. The facts will prove this. It, it, it was just one of the more bizarre public statements I've even seen. said that what he had been told to be silent, be silent. Now, he didn't say who was telling him that, like if that was his personal attorney or if the university had said that, but um, at least I don't think, not from what I uh, remember in the statement, but it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, obviously you can't go around uh, making racially charged statements at your players, at, at the, the guys in the program. Clearly, you can't do that. I, I guess my, my real question, though, is like, what is the, what's the breaking point? What's the, and, and just because someone said something two or three years ago doesn't make it okay. But I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is like, are, are people going to go back? Are guys going to say they had a problem a long time ago. Generally, what I'm saying is how many coaches or whoever is out there right now going through all of the things that they've said in the past and being like, man, I, uh, I hope I didn't say anything that was, you know, that's going to get me in trouble here, which, you know, I'm not saying that it's, uh, that it should be okay if you said it in the past. I'm just, I guess what I'm saying is how big in college football is this thing going to get? Because you know, we've heard about the thing in Clemson. Now right. we've heard about the thing in Iowa. You know, I'm, I'm just wondering, are, are there going to be more former players across the country from uh, three, five, eight years ago come out and say something that a, an active coach or strength coach or someone had said to them or, or some type of culture in a program? So, I don't know, it's just interesting to see where this is going to lead. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to Chris Doyle if he keeps his job there at Iowa. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Kirk Ferentz because, I mean, he's made some public statements now, not the strongest public statements we've ever seen, but it seems like the Iowa culture is going to change a little bit. Now, I do think some people are seeing some of these things, and, and not every complaint about Chris Doyle from former Iowa players involves race, right? There's There was a guy that said that, you know, they constantly called him dumb and talked about how stupid he was and that he couldn't read and all this stuff. It was a guy that had ADHD. And he talks about the toll it took on him mentally. And, I, Teddy, you know this as well as I do. Strength coaches, especially guys that come from the old school, right? And you got to remember, Chris Doyle has been at Iowa for 21 years. Football culture in 1999, a lot different than football culture in 2020. So I think there's a lot of strength coaches that are sitting at home right now praying that their former players don't say anything. Because I can tell you, I know plenty of guys that have had stuff similar to this said to them at all kinds of different schools. And that, that's part of 
it, I, part of the strength coach's job is to find ways to motivate guys. And some of those old school strength coaches say some pretty messed up stuff to white guys, black guys, and everything in between. And I do think, just like you mentioned, there's a lot of coaches and there's a lot of strength coaches sitting at home right now going, oh, please, God, I hope my guys don't say anything. Because anyone that thinks Chris Doyle is the only strength coach saying stuff like this, anyone that thinks that is extremely naive. Because you know as well as I do, there's strength coaches across the country saying jacked up stuff like this. And they've been doing it for decades. And now social media exists. These former players, they got nothing to lose. This is now a very, you know, popular topic of conversation with what's going on with race relations in this country. And I think this is just the tip of a very, very big iceberg, Teddy. Well, I mean, it is, and it's a it's a dangerous road to go down because I, you know, it's kind of it, it's it's hard to. I want this to come out the right way. I I fear that. Players are going to, let's say Chris Doyle ends up, he's been, he's on administrative leave. Let's say right now, because of the current situation, he gets, he gets fired. I feel like this is emboldening players across the country to get anyone who makes them uncomfortable fired, right? Anytime a strength coach a position coach, a coordinator, a head coach says things to you that are sharp, that are, I mean, that are, you know, meant to be motivating, but you know how it is, Gabe, like but, whenever uh, coaches are ripping you, like, like, where's the, where's the point between guys saying, well, he said this, he said this because I'm, I'm black or he's, he's treating me this way because I just, I don't know how you, it just seems to me like a slippery slope. And again, I'm not saying what Chris Doyle did was right or wrong. I don't know enough about the things that he said, but I knew that, do know that if you start firing guys over things that are being said that they, you know, did or said in years past, it's just like you're, you're putting yourselves at risk and you're putting the rest of your staff at risk anytime they're trying to get the most out of a player by making him uncomfortable, putting some pressure on him to perform. And sometimes it, there's, there's some harsh things that are, that are said and done. And, and, you know, a lot of people won't agree with those tactics, but you know, they're, they're trying to get the absolute most out of these guys. It just, it's seems like a slippery slope that could end up being used as a weapon. Right. No. And you look at the Iowa situation, you look at, you know, Mike Norvell's situation there where his best – at Florida State where his best player, Marvin Wilson, calls him out for saying that he talked to all his players individually. I mean, puts a video out on Twitter criticizing yeah, his current 
head coach saying they're not working out. I mean, to guys like me and you, when we see something like that, you're just going, oh my, that would never happen Mm -hmm. back in the day. But you look at the Clemson situation with everything that's going down, you know, with the assistant dropping the racial slur, with now some of these things being said about Dabo, uh, with Trevor Lawrence stepping up and kind of being the face of the program right now and being very outspoken about all these things, we are starting to see players across the country putting their thoughts out there and about everything, right? Because I think a lot of these kids are realizing they have the platform. I'm just wondering, what does this mean for the future of college football? Is this the new normal where we've got college football players chiming in on things going on in the government, on social issues, on social justice, all of these things? Because you know as well as I do, Ted, traditionally college coaches – have told guys to stay away from that stuff, to not talk about that stuff. I mean, there's still some coaches that have social media bans out there. Kurt Ferentz being one of them mm-hmm. at Iowa. And I feel like that all is changing. I think we're going to start seeing players speak up on all kinds of things, and schools are just going to have to accept it. And like you mentioned, that slippery slope, Coaches and strength coaches, they're going to have to change their approach. They're going to have to change their their approach because if they use some of their old tactics with these guys, they're going to get exposed. And that stuff is going to get aired publicly. So I do think you still want stuff to stay in the locker room, right? It's, it's supposed to be sacred. It's supposed to be just between the guys in that room. Those days are gone, and that's over. It's over. So the coaches are going to have to adjust accordingly. And I know a lot of people are going to go, these kids are soft, right? They're whining, right? And I, I understand that old school viewpoint. I get it. There was some really weird, messed up stuff said to me throughout my playing career. Like, I was, I came from a well-off family. I went to Catholic school. You can probably connect some dots. There was some weird stuff said to me, but I it, it wasn't racial or anything like that, so it never really bothered me. I, I can't imagine what that feels like for some of these black guys when they feel like they were being singled out for the race. That, that couldn't have felt good at all, but that stuff's going to have to get dialed back. I think there's going to be a lot of crows coaches across the country that are having meetings today talking about this Chris Doyle situation and going, guys, that style of coaching, we, we just can't do it anymore. We can't do it because we'll get exposed and we'll all lose our jobs. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, again, I think that the players understand that they're going to have the leverage to – to put pressure on anyone that makes them feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. And I think ultimately what we're going to end up getting is NFL light, uh, NFL 2.0. And what I mean by that is 
um, strength and conditioning is going to become less and less involved with what these guys do in the off season. And I think, um, you know, the coaching in the NFL is in the, in the structure of the NFL is completely different than it is college football. It's one of the reasons I hated the NFL is because there's almost no team camaraderie. It's, it's essentially every man for himself um, about how he's going to get his contract and, and all of those different things. And I feel like college football is going to slowly turn into that with uh, guys getting uh, some type of endorsement deals, which I'm not against. I'm just saying that, you know, they're going to start to prioritize some of the stuff, you know, there's a Lincoln was making statements this past week about the, um, the off season workouts and the not mandatory, you know, it's just the, why am I drawing a blank on uh, voluntary, voluntary workouts? Well, all of it's voluntary. I mean, no one's forcing any of the, I mean, yeah. You don't have to play college football. You don't have to play college football. If, if you feel like, um, you know, you can take the spring off and come back in the fall and training camp and still go win your position. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, like, it, it, the pendulum has swung to the to the players' directions so much to where it's like, strength of camp. Maybe I'm maybe I'm better off if I do my own stuff. If I go get my strength training somewhere else, I don't necessarily like the way the strength coach does things here. I want to play here, but you know, maybe I'll I'll do it myself now. We're a ways away from that, but I think that that's where it's it's slowly going to end up, especially after a year where you didn't have any of those guys on campus throughout the the off season, spring and summer. I mean, you know, I think. Well, I guess the point is, college football players are going going to start taking the word voluntary literally. They never have in the past. It was just something that was slapped on there by the NCAA. It was always viewed as something as well. If you're not there, you're not going to play. But I don't think that guys are going to look at it that way moving forward. I really don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you want to call it player empowerment or I, I don't know what the term is for. But but it feels like something's shifting. It, it does, and I think coaches are going to have to adjust to it. And, and the players they they feel like they're getting more power. And like you mentioned, the name, image, and likeness stuff that is going to be in place soon. It's just going to be really interesting to see how this evolves. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. Uh, all right, Ted, let's move on to some segments uh, since it's Monday. Of course, you're going to get some football guys talking basketball, FGTB. Yes. And you may get two OU guys defending Oklahoma State. Yes, I know that sounds mm-hmm. weird, but this Oklahoma State situation is ridiculous. Ridiculous. First, I want to say I am a huge, and I do mean huge, Mike Boynton fan. I've had the ability to talk to him numerous times on my SiriusXM show on Big 12 Radio. He is world class. He's fantastic. So the fact that all of this is happening while he's the head coach and he's being punished for things that he didn't do, it really pisses me off because I think he is a world-class human being. So just a reminder, this is what happened. Lamont Evans was an assistant coach under Brad Underwood there at Oklahoma State. He accepted somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 to steer players from South Carolina 
in Oklahoma State to certain agents and financial advisors. He got busted in the FBI investigation, and he got sentenced to jail time. Now, let's not forget everything that Lamont Evans did resulted in a whole lot of nothing for Oklahoma State. Right. They didn't benefit in recruiting. They didn't play an ineligible player at any point. OSU found out when Evans got arrested and fired him two days later when they found out all the facts. The NCAA, in their investigation, agreed with all of this. They said Oklahoma State fully cooperated. OSU, they received one level one violation, and they still got fucking hammered by the NCAA Committee on Infractions. One-year postseason ban, three years probation, a reduction of three scholarships every year for the next three years, which is an absolutely crippling punishment restrictions and reductions on essentially everything they can do in recruiting, whether that's on campus or off campus, contacting guys. OSU was shocked. The leadership, Mike Boynton, and I was shocked. They're clearly going to appeal, but this doesn't make any – This I'm, I'm going to say it doesn't feel right to me. And I will never, ever, ever understand the NCAA punishing players and coaches that have absolutely nothing to do with those infractions. Why do those kids and that staff get punished for these selfish acts of one guy that they had nothing to do with, Teddy? It makes no fucking sense to me. No, I, I have no idea. It's, it's frustrating. You know, the the first part of you says, well, you know, they've got to do something to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, but does punishing the people who didn't do it the first time around, does that make sure it doesn't happen again? I don't think so. I don't think that the basketball program, and when I mean basketball program, as far as athletic director, people around it, you know, that kind of make the gears turn. I don't think they had anything to do with it in the beginning. I don't think they were complicit. I don't think they they understood or, or even had any awareness as to what was happening behind the scenes. So to punish them, to punish OSU's basketball program, it doesn't make any sense at all. If, if anything, you go after the coaches that were there that are still active in, in college basketball and hammer them, um, punish them wherever they might be right now. But it's frustrating because this next year for Oklahoma State, this is it. This is Mike Boynton's year. He's got the number one recruit or, or one of the best recruits in the, in the country, locked and loaded, ready to show up, play some basketball. They've got some, some good guys there uh, ready to build something, and, and maybe he can build a program from that point on. And you're at a, a really bad position where you may lose Kate Cunningham. You know, um, postseason ban and three scholarships in basketball is like, that's everything. I mean, it's, I don't it's know. a lot. If they don't win this appeal 
And even if Cade Cunningham still comes to Oklahoma State, he's going to be a one-and-done guy. I, I don't know that Oklahoma State recovers from this. This could not have come at a worse time for that basketball program. It's on life support to, to begin with. It sets them back. I, and I don't think this is drastic. Even though I, Mike Boynton, he's a tough guy. I'm sure he's going to try to make the best of this. He's going to give it all he's got, right? But when you look at if these sanctions end up sticking and they don't win the appeal, this sets them back for a decade. Easy. Easy. And I know that sounds drastic, but when you think of it, it's just, it just does. I mean, because what is Mike Boynton supposed to get done with those scholarship limitations? So not only he doesn't get to take the program where he wants. So what happens when a program doesn't win games? They fire the coach. You start all over. You hire someone new. You try to rebuild that way. And that cycle starts all over again. You don't have the consistency. And I'm afraid that's what's going to happen to Oklahoma State. Now, I'm not going to doubt Mike Boynton. Like I said, I love the guy. Don't you think that – I mean, you've got to, as holder, let's say the the appeal doesn't – yield anything and they're hit with this, this these heavy sanctions I mean you've got to have Mike Boynton's back right you've got to know that he he made all the right moves he he's got the right recruits coming in and he just got hammered uh, this was going to be the big building block of the program this upcoming season don't you feel like you've got to have his back I mean have to I don't, firing him and bringing in someone else isn't going to really change anything you got to allow – oh, I mean, and maybe he won't want it for three more years with all, all the right. sanctions. But, you know, I, I think it's easy for me to say, but I feel like I would have his back and, and let him see this thing through. It, all you need to know about Mike Boynton in that press conference he had the other day, first question he gets is about Cade Cunningham and what decision the number one recruit in the country is going to make. And Mike Boynton made it simple. He's going to support whatever Cade Cunningham wants to do. And if that's going to the G League, like Jalen Green, and making somewhere in between 500000 and a million dollars, then Mike Boynton said he's going to support him. It's just a devastating development for Oklahoma State basketball when it really did feel like they were on the right track, and they were going to have a great season with a program-changing player. And now we don't even know if the guy's going to go to mm-hmm. Oklahoma State. I wouldn't. I doubt he does. I mean, I hope he does because I want to see entertaining basketball in the state of Oklahoma. I, I want to go to Bedlam and watch Cade Cunningham play. I do. but I would go if I was him. You'd go to Oklahoma State still? I think it's worth more money than G League. I'm with you. There, nobody. I don't care who you are. Nobody watches G League. Nobody. And I know Cade Cunningham is a big deal to people in the know, but the average run-of-the-mill basketball fan walking around, NBA fan walking around, has no idea who Cade Cunningham is. We know him around here, but most people have no clue who he, this guy here's is. A, here's a question for you, Teddy. Do you know who R.J. Hampton is? No. So, R.J. Hampton was one of the top recruits in the country. Everyone thought he was going to go to Kansas or Kentucky. 
he ended up going and playing in Australia, in the Australian Basketball League for, I believe, the New Zealand Breakers. Mm-hmm. He went and did that this year. You don't even know who he is. No. So the, the, that's exactly the point. Cade Cunningham, even though they have a postseason ban, and postseason is obviously – that's where more eyes than anyone are on you. But it, do you know this postseason ban, does that include the Big 12 tournament? I don't know, but I assume so that because be that weird. is a postseason tournament. But I hope not because I would like to see him play in Kansas City. That would be pretty right. badass. Um I guess you wouldn't want your team that's banned from the postseason to win the the tournament. (laughs) But, um, like, take Zion Williamson, for example, whenever he went to to Duke. It was can't miss television anytime Duke was on TV. When he had the shoe blowout and everything, whether or not he's going to play the rest of the season. And, like, everyone in the country knew who Zion Williamson was because of the ESPN highlights and, and what was going on at Duke. And he was kind of Instagram famous before he got to Duke because of the dunks in high school. But I had followed him a little bit, but, you know. His, when, you, when you talk about his brand, right, he made hundred million millions and millions and millions of dollars going to play at Duke. And I, I'm with you today. I, even if the G League says, hey, we'll give you a million dollars, Cade Cunningham, he should still go play college basketball. Maybe not at Oklahoma State. I hope he goes to Oklahoma State. But if he goes and plays college basketball, I I would assume it would be somewhere else because he'd want to be able to play in the NCAA tournament. But I think he can make so much more money going and playing college basketball and building your brand. And you get get a natural fan base – wherever you go and play like Zion. I mean, Zion's got Duke fans that will love him forever. And he went to Duke for like eight days. Even though it's a small school, there's a lot of Duke basketball fans out there. So a lot lot of haters, but also a lot of fans. I mean, even if he stays in college basketball and goes and plays someone else, somewhere else, I think he's, you know, if he's the player that everyone thinks he is, you know, he can, he can take his first shoe deal to, you know, multiple multiple millions of dollars if he becomes a household name but even if he stays at Oklahoma State because he feels like maybe he owes it to Mike Boynton who's been there forever he's got a family member on the staff Uh, obviously there's been a, a, a close connection between him and that group you know it's not like Oklahoma State's going to be playing a bunch of bums Kansas yeah, Baylor. You're gonna be on Texas Big Monday Tech. all the time if Kate Cunningham goes there, and he is Big going to get. Big Twelve is a great platform. It is. It's the best conference in college basketball, mm-hmm. and that's not me saying that. You can go look at the RPI from the last couple of years and the new net rankings. That's that's what the analytics say. That's what a bunch of guys that cover college basketball for a living say is that the Big Twelve in the last five years has been the best basketball conference in the country. You go beat Kansas in Kansas and put up 35 points and hit a game-winning shot, have a breakaway dunk uh, on a big Monday, dude, that that G League will never provide that type of exposure. This is what's happening. Cade Cunningham, listen. Listen to these two OU guys. Go to Oklahoma State. Still go. Build the brand. 
Go, go make your name in college basketball. Don't do the G League thing. You'll make a lot more money on Big Mondays and Super Tuesdays, whatever the hell ESPN calls them now. Do it. Come on. Come. Still come to Oklahoma State. Yeah, I'm saying it. Come on. Hey, come this on. Is, this is one guy who had a, a Nike shoe deal to another that's probably going to get one. And Gabe, did you ever have one? Oh, no. I was way too bad to ever get an actual shoe deal. I did have some people that had good Nike shoe deals give me shoes, though. So, right. Now, I say that it kind of sounds like a big deal, but uh, I probably had the smallest uh, shoe deal you could ever have with Nike, uh, but it still had one nonetheless. No, I, he's, he's set up uh, – if he goes to college basketball – Wherever that might be, I hope he goes to Oklahoma State because um, depending on the appeal, whatever happens there, obviously I think Big 12 basketball is better if Oklahoma State is good. God, that hurts to say, but you know what? I think a little piece of your soul just died. (laughs) What happened? I blacked out. What what just happened? No, I mean, I want want the, uh, the league to be the best it can be. And I think Cade Cunningham would, would make for an exciting year. And I want Oklahoma State as good as possible whenever we go beat them. Hey, that's always a good way of looking at it. You know what I want? I want the NCAA to do the right thing and to take the postseason ban away. It's too much. It's too severe. Do the right thing. When the appeal happens, which it's happening right now, Here's, the, here's what I hate about the NCAA. They seem to, like, turn a blind eye to some things, and other things they come in and hammer a university whenever, like, the Reggie Bush-USC situation is like, I'm still, I cannot grasp why USC had to go through what they went through during that situation. Am I saying what happened is right or wrong? No, but it had absolutely zero to do with USC. Zero. And they essentially set that program back for a decade. And think about all the money that, you know, if if the NCAA is is about, like, you know, improving things and, like, USC was like one of their, their cash cows and they just destroyed them. We saw what the NCAA did with James Wiseman this year. Guy was supposed to be the best player in college basketball, right? Freshman in Memphis. Forced him out. Ineligible. Now they're going to force out Cade Cunningham, maybe? And he's going to go to the G League and we're not even going to watch him play college basketball? We're going to have to, what, pull it up on – I don't even know what the G League's on. What, YouTube? Well, I'll just tell you, I won't that be awful. it up at all. <laughs> I mean, I, it might as well be on a, a channel that you can only get living in Mars because I won't be watching yeah. it. There's no way. Yeah. So, hopefully the NCAA does the right thing. And if they don't, hopefully Cade Cunningham, for whatever reason, will still go to Oklahoma State so we can watch him play for a year and enjoy it. But, man, I, I just thought that that was unbelievably harsh for guys that had nothing to do with what happened with Lamont Evans. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, one more piece of basketball information here locally, Sam Presti spoke to the media on Sunday, now said a lot of great things about, you know, the, the protests and how, you know, we need to build each other up and listen to all that. Just some really insightful comments 
on all that stuff, but he did uh, talk about Andre Robertson and his availability once the season starts back up in Orlando in late July. And he didn't exactly rule him out, Ted. He said that the time has really helped Andre Robertson. And the only thing that they are still very worried about is they haven't seen him play five-on-five basketball, which is kind of an important thing in basketball, especially at the NBA level. Yeah. We're thinking about playing our left tackle. We've never seen him block anyone, but we're thinking about playing him. He hasn't blocked anyone in two and a half years, but, you know, still got it, right? I like that. uh, I didn't hear Sam Presti, but I'm guessing that he said something like, there has been some intrinsic value with the COVID-19 situation as it pertains to Andre uh, Robertson. He was certainly – he he was certainly throwing out some of the vocab words, but not nearly as highfalutin. I don't know. Is that a word? I think I just made that up. As he normally said, he, the stuff he talked about when it came to Chris Paul's role and getting the league back on track to play and then, you know, the, the protests and the racial component of everything, it was really dang good. He was He was great. But, yeah, the thing that stood out is that well, Andre Robertson, I, I'd kind of written him off, right? It guy hasn't played in two and a half years. I, I didn't think that – I thought Sam Presti would have shut it down immediately, said, no, Andre's not going to be ready, but kind of left the door open. Makes you wonder. No, that, I mean, that is interesting. Um, we, ta- we talked about it before. Even though he is an extremely limited player, he does have his value on the defensive end of the floor. And – in games that turn into a possession-by-possession game late and you're going offense-defense with subs, he is outstanding on the defensive end and can defend multiple positions, great length, great athleticism. You know, I don't know, obviously, how explosive he is coming off of that injury. Gosh, has it been a calendar year now or more? Teddy, it's almost been – it's almost – it's like two years and four months Is it really? Yeah. Jeez, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be like two and a half years when. Because we were talking July about him, whether or not he was going to be back for the beginning of, of this season that should be over now. But yeah, no, it's God. You would think that he would be ready to go. And if he's not out there ready, 100% able, you got to feel like either they don't want him to play or something didn't really go right with that recovery last year of his contract i'm i'm convinced i don't know i don't have any inside information i think he retours patellar tendon to some extent it i mean that's the only thing that makes sense to me but he's in the last year of his contract if he can give you anything maybe he can guard donovan mitchell last couple possessions of a game or if they get the rockets he can guard harden i mean that's he was one of the harden stoppers right back in the day so if he's healthy enough to go you can find a way, I guess you can find a spot for him. You can pick and choose when you get him on the court, but I just don't know. I'm, I'm still convinced. I'm not going to believe he's going to play in the NBA again until I see it with my I'll own take, eyes. I'll tell you something that's interesting. I was just thinking about it with, uh, you said he's a Harden stopper. You know, James Harden is, he's not really known for his off-season work ethic when it comes to staying in shape. I wonder what type of shape he's going to be in when this season starts back He's up. lost – I don't know if you've seen pictures of him. He's lost a ton of weight. Oh, really? 
like well, 15, 20 pounds from what it looked like to me. I was shocked. I thought he would ballooned up from all the buffets at strip clubs. Yeah, well, that's one of the things, you know, that the uh, gentlemen's clubs being down because of the virus has really helped James Harden out quite a bit. What about Zion? Have we had a weight check on Zion Ooh, recently? No, I'm, I can't wait. I can't He's going to show up it. looking like a left tackle. <laughs> oh, he was a couple of cheeseburgers away already. So I, I'm, I'm sure that they have kept close tabs on the face of the franchise there in New Orleans. All right, Ted, let's move on to our winners and losers of the weekend. Like our man Toby Keith says, we got winners, we got losers. Who do you have as your winner of the weekend? My winner is hard seltzer makers out there. Your White Claws, your Trulies. Um, I, what was that one you were? Bon and Vive for Bon and Viv. I don't know. It's really good. No, it's my there, was favorite a di- one. there was a different one you had today. I saw oh, it on Will and Wiley, the yes. local one from Coop Ale Works. Yeah. Oh, I drank. I don't want, I, re- you know what? I plead the fifth. I'm not telling you how many uh, Will and Wiley's I drank this weekend. So uh, it's funny, you know, here at the house, you know, we've, we got a pool in the backyard. A bunch of our neighbors have kids, our son's age. And in the summers, it's a pretty good hangout. A lot of the neighbors are over. And I've noticed the ratio of beer drinkers to, to seltzer drinkers has, in one year, done a complete turn. It used to be uh, everyone was razzing the guys for, oh, what are you drinking a seltzer? Nice. I noticed all those guys are now drinking uh, the hard seltzers. Isn't that weird when you try something and it's absolutely refreshing and delicious and you're like, oh, I I was wrong. So a a quick peek into the numbers is uh, pretty interesting. In 2019, uh, the hard seltzer market increased 226%. Okay. And the 2020 sales forecast has a a revenue doubling, Gabe, to 3.5% billion dollars so Mm. Mm, seltzers mm, mm. are taking over my question to you is why are we not brewing our own seltzer right now and trying to get a piece of the pie yeah i feel like the market may be a little saturated now but when you talk about you know we we've talked about when we want to start getting sponsorships for the Mm -hmm. podcast maybe we give our friends at Coop Ale Works a call and say, hey, do, do, do you guys want to make Will and Wiley the official hard seltzer of the Oklahoma breakdown with Eichert and Lehman? This stuff. is just where my mind's at, where my mind's at. I'm just thinking out loud here. stuff. I mean, come on. We do know the revenue is increasing, guys. You got to advertise. Just no, saying. but that's, that's, my, that's my winner. There, uh, if anyone from Coop hears this, they're going to be like, you're advertising it for free right now, you <laughs> idiots. <laughs> Exactly. Um, loser for me, unfortunately, is Drew Brees. Mm. Um, Interesting week for old Brees. I'm not going to get into what he said and or anything. I It's just to show that, you know, Drew Brees, I make fun of him all the time uh, on my – on my regular show, I make fun of his jewelry situation where he spent like $15 million on jewelry. wasn't great. It wasn't great. <laughs> so I hammer him about that all the time. But if you look at Drew Brees, I mean, what he's done for New Orleans and 
you know, he's, he's done a lot of really, really good things for all kinds of people. And they have come after Drew Brees relentlessly. And I'm not saying whether, again, what he did was right or wrong. I'll leave that up to, to everyone else. But he issued an apology. Then he issued an apology for his apology. Then his wife has issued an apology. It's like there's and then, no – And then he, what, like posted or like pinned a letter to President Trump. Right. It's like he he needs to just check out because there you're not going to win it. it I don't Are, care what you say at this point. You're not going to win. You just need to put the phone down and step away from social media for a good while because I'll tell you – they're going to, the, the mob will go after someone else if you would just leave the platform for a little while. Let the, you're, let you're, the mob go over here first. You're telling him, you're you're saying that Breeze just needs to do less. Just do less right now. <laughs> just do nothing right now. Yeah, you're right. But I had to put him in as as the loser right now because uh, it is relentless. Yeah, it, and I was only teammates with him for a couple of weeks. I've never seen a guy own a city the way he did. I'd never seen a guy lead the way he did and he was the most dedicated teammate I've ever had and I I I think that's why he's been as good as he can but even when you're on top and everyone loves you sometimes you know you you get in some hot water and I think it's been a really interesting week for old Drew Brees and it did it was alarming and there's still crazy people out there you know threatening to kill him and his wife. And I saw Brittany Breeze put that out there. I was like, geez, yeah, good to see that there's still horrible people in the world. That's nice. Right. But yeah, definitely a rough week. Now, my winner of the week, people that are good at math, Ted, I have not taken math since I believe the year of our Lord 2009. Is I th- I, actually, I may have taken statistics. Yeah, I took statistics in college my freshman year, I believe, for life sciences. It was great. The teacher asked me to be a TA. That's how good I was at it. It was great. Really enjoyed it. Standard deviation for you? Oh, yeah. Standard deviation from the mean, little mu. Everyone, all the math nerds are going, I like these guys. <laughs> but, yeah, my winner of the week weekend, people that are good at math because the NBA announced that standings will be determined by winning percentage. So teams, clearly, that are going to Orlando – Teams have played different amounts of games. So we all wondered how they were going to do that. The NBA sent a memo out over the weekend saying that seeding will be determined by winning percentage. So people are going to have to do math. I am not going to be one of those people, but the people that are good at math are going to thrive. Now, we talked about, well, what happens if there's a couple teams tied for the ninth seed? Will they be able to do like a one-game type scenario where then they played the eight seed if they're within four games in the standings? Unfortunately, not happening. Uh, the NBA said it's going to use traditional tiebreakers. So the only play-in games will be between a ninth seed if they're within four games of the standings and the eight seed. So there's no game that's going to happen between the teams to play the eighth. And that made me kind of sad, Ted. I know we were hoping for a little uh, 
some some interesting matchups, kind of a play-in game for the play-in. Yeah, I, I think it would be – it's an awesome opportunity for the – they're already doing it, but it's an awesome opportunity for the NBA just to try some strange one-off things that may work just under this scenario, right? Whether it's um, uh, like a elimination, like you – sudden death to play uh, the play-in team or, or however you want to structure it, it would have been pretty cool. But, you know, I think even the the opportunity for the eight and the nine to play is still going to be pretty cool. Yeah. The eight seed will be pissed, but, you know, yes. it'll still be pretty cool. Really hope I, – I would be really surprised if it doesn't happen in the Western Conference. Don't think it's going to happen in the East, but it, – What do you think fun. about the – I know this is a quick change of topic. Don't mean to derail it, but what do you think of the – Adam Silver has long touted the the midseason tournament, like the All Star Break tournament. Are you a fan I, of that at all? Kind of like the way soccer does it. Yeah, sure. Why not? Give Give me all the competitive situations. I think guys will get fired up if they're playing for something, and organizations will get fired. You, there has to be an incentive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not just going to get fired up to play more games for a trophy. There's got to be money on the line, or draft picks, something, and. I think they can get really creative, but single elimination is cool because you know if you're playing seven game series, the the true the better team is always going to win the seven game series. I mean that's just how it's going to be. But dude, single elimination format. I mean you never know what's going to happen in, in a one off game. So that would be pretty fun. Yeah, sign me up. I love the NBA. Give me more NBA basketball. I'm all for it. Uh, my loser of the weekend, Kansas. Kansas, they have to be absolutely shook by the punishment that Oklahoma State got for only one level one violation. Just your friendly reminder that the boys in Lawrence got five level one violations. Now, I know each case is different and all that, but if Oklahoma State got what they got with one, you would assume that Kansas is going to get hammered with the five. And not only Kansas basketball, loser of the weekend, Kansas football also my loser of the weekend because after all of the bad headlines and the legal fees, they end up paying David Beatty $2.55 million after trying to shadily find a loophole to not pay his buyout. His buyout was $3 million. They paid 2.55, and I'm sure they paid a lot more than half a million in legal fees because yeah. this went on for forever, Ted. Yeah, that old uh, $400 an hour meter going there on the uh, the lawyer, law firm probably racked up pretty quick. We spent a lot of man hours on this, Kansas. And 400, and frankly, my brother works at the most financially secure law firm in the world called Kirkland & Ellis. He works there in Chicago. $400 an hour is not even half of what it costs to get my brother. Wow. So, and he's, it's not like he's one of the partners or anything. So they were paying huge amounts of money for a long time and their reputation took a hit. In my opinion, I I really, I I wonder what the legal fees were. I'm, I'm very interested, but they did it because this ends the possibility of TJ Gasnola being deposed. So 
I think that they wanted to nip that in the bud before this whole basketball FBI investigation and those sanctions. I think they wanted that to go away before those sanctions come down. So, but not a great week for the Kansas Jayhawks, in my opinion, no, Ted. It wasn't. And here's um, one more kind of level to the, the basketball side of things. Remember, Oklahoma State, as you pointed out, one uh, of those uh, level one violations. Kansas had five. Oklahoma State also uh, did everything they could to, to help. Completely cooperated. Completely cooperated. And remember, the last couple of things that have come out between the NCAA and Kansas, Kansas said, nope. Uh, we disagree. We, we're going to fight you on this tooth and nail. And I completely agree with their strategy. And what happened to Oklahoma State's a perfect example. It, it does not appear right. to help you if you fully cooperate with the NCAA. It, I mean, you look at what happened with North Carolina basketball, right? They lawyered up. What punishment did they get for widespread for like- academic fraud? It went on for like 10 years, too. By that time, I mean, everyone that was involved was gone. And then what years. was it? Missouri football completely cooperated, right? Got hammered. I mean, it's, it just makes no sense. So I, the second Kansas told the NCAA to kiss their ass, I was like, you know what? I, <laughs> I kind of think that's the right approach. All right, Ted, uh, let's move on to everyone's favorite segment here on the Oklahoma Breakdown, and that is keeping it local where we highlight what's going on in the great state of Oklahoma. And this week on Thursday, Dead Center Film Festival begins. It is the 20th year of the festival. It is Oklahoma's largest film festival. Unfortunately, because of the coronavirus, it is going to be all virtual, but Dead Center is making the best of it. You know, and we are close with Lance McDaniel, who's the executive director of this event, and it's really cool. Uh, I mean, you're talking about short films, documentaries, independent films, feature films from around the world, and then all of those categories from films that were filmed in Oklahoma or filmed by Oklahomans made. It's just really, really cool, but like I said, all virtual this year, or mostly virtual, and they're taking advantage of it, Ted, by offering 140 films, as well as panels and filmmaking classes. And I, I thought it was pretty cool. And I, I know my wife. We've already got our all-access pass, which you can go and get on deadcenterfilm.org, and I, I believe they're like half price. Now, since it went completely virtual, or you can get individual tickets for features for $10. And one that I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in that will be featured at Dead Center is the documentary Eddie about Eddie Sutton. I I think there's going to be a lot of people that want to see that one. So just so I understand, like if I want to watch the uh, Eddie documentary, the film festival, uh, film festival starts uh, Thursday, and I'll be able to go to the website, and for ten bucks, I'll be able to, I'll have access online I, to that. Under if uh, that's how I understand it. Now, don't hold me to that. So go to the website deadcenterfilm.org for all the details. But 
I think with it being virtual, now they may release different ones on different days. I don't know if it's like a Netflix style type see, situation yeah. where you can, you know, you can watch whatever one you want every day. I d- I'm not going to pretend I know, but I'm definitely watching that one. That's for that. 10 bucks. Easy, easy. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's cool. And good timing on that, uh, that documentary as well. And I know obviously they've been making it for some time. I'm sure there's some really good footage on there, but, um, that's awesome. Yeah. So if, if you're out there and you've run through all of the Netflix library through all the quarantine and all these things, go check out deadcenterfilm.org. It's a really cool event and it's actually an event that it's, it's sad, but it's, it's known for its parties and the parties are a good time and not having the parties this year, Ted. And I was finally going to get to go. I was finally going to get to go. Well, there's always next year, Gabe. There's always next year. Maybe you'll come. Maybe, hey, maybe we'll do a podcast from Dead Center next year, huh? Huh? Ah, maybe we should submit one of our um, videos from a podcast as a film, a feature film. This is <laughs> this is a very well-made feature. And Gosh. coming in last. Uh, hey, we'll take last. Up. We'll place. It's fine. I don't know. I don't know if there's places. I don't think there's places, but it, my wife loves it. So I, I'm excited about it. And we will be, we'll be watching a lot of that stuff from dead center film festival throughout the week in the weekend. And it's, it's like a record length now because it's all virtual. So they could stretch it out. I think it's like 11 days. So that all access pass seeming well worth it to me. Um, now Ted, let's finish up with a Twitter question. This comes from Kyle Deason, at Kyle underscore Deason. He says, in honor of the guys returning to campus for voluntary workouts, give us your best story of when you returned from an extended break and maybe had a few too many cheeseburgers. Um, I think my, like my worst story was the, my very first day was like the worst ever for me same and that i mean it was just it was it was horrible i came in from so i was there was not a whole lot of guy i don't know if anyone did the early arrival back then for the spring semester so i came i like graduated had my high school graduation uh in late may and then like after like i left i think that monday after it was like on a friday i left on monday packed everything into my truck, drove to OU, moved into a dorm on campus. And we started workouts later that week. I think like on a, I got there like on a Monday and I think we had like our first workout on like a Wednesday or Thursday. And I was in like, I was in good shape. I thought I was strong. I thought, and it was just, I have no idea to explain how my body just stopped working. I, we went out and did the normal like speed workout before like you start off, you go through some hurdles, you do some quick feet stuff and then you just keep going and keep doing more drills and they're faster and they're more intense than the last one. And, and everyone's the, yelling and making yeah, noises. I'm hit. I hit a hurdle and I got screamed at and I was like, what? but I've never done this before. I, I don't know what I'm doing. It was horrible. So I, by the time we were done with, 
the speed workout is more of a warm up slash speed workout. It's the first workout. It wasn't even like it was that intense, but I'd never been through anything like that before. And my body was like already shutting down. And I remember thinking, this is a two hour workout. This is going to be horrible. But I somehow made it through that. And then we go to the weight room and Smitty tells everyone, change your cleats into your shoes and meet us in the weight room. And I remember thinking, whew, all right, time for a little bit of a break, switch the shoes over. Little did I know it was going to be a race to see who could switch their shoes the fastest and get into the weight room the fastest. So there was no break. Um, We go running in there. I've got like my shoelaces falling apart. We go sprinting into the weight room and I'm so exhausted. I can't even like, we're doing dumbbell bench, Gabe, and I've got like 30 pound dumbbells and I could do like a hundred pound dumbbells, like on a, like on a normal day. I have like the 30 pound dumbbells and I'm like shaking and I can't even move them. I'm like, what has happened to me? So somehow I like barely even survive. Like I'm at this point, I'm not even surviving. I'm just, I have a pulse and I'm there. And then we go out to do some conditioning and that day it was we were running up the east side of the stadium they didn't have at that point they didn't have the upper deck so and we weren't in the south end zone thank god we were running up the east side and i just it was you know i didn't you survived you're still here i mean i'm talking to you right now so you're you're breathing that's good i was puking like neon yellow bile yep and been I there. remember throwing up, and I was like, it looks like the blood from the predator uh, whenever he's <laughs> bleeding. And I was like, I haven't had anything that color. I haven't. I haven't had any Gatorade that color. I didn't eat what anything that color. What is this color? I'm dying. This is me dying here on puking into a drain on Owen Field. That, this is what my life is going to be. And, I, I mean, it was just the most god-awful experience of my life the next day let me just say this real quickly the next day we ran uh 600 yard gassers or the six trip gassers you know i missed my time i had to come back in the afternoon and do it again and it was death warmed over so at that point i vowed to never ever ever miss another time for the rest of my life and i never did so that those two days were that was the worst of it for me life altering um mine's the exact same first day i still remember the date june 1st 2009 (laughs) i was i I was i'd come to ou as a tight end i wasn't the fastest guy but it did not help my senior year after football season i played basketball we were going for a fourth straight state championship in basketball at bishop mcginnis so maybe it was the first game, one of the first games we played in the state title game and lost in football and, you know, trying to work your way back into basketball shape and play. And one of the first games I broke my foot playing basketball, fifth metatarsal kid stuck his foot underneath me on purpose. He told me that not my assumption. He oh, told awesome. me he did it on purpose. That's great. And I break my foot. So not great, clearly, but still plenty of time to rehab and let it heal and be back for the playoffs, which is what I did, right? 
come back for the playoffs in March. So I broke it the first time in December. Come back in March. Feel pretty good about it. Rebreak my foot in the playoffs. Awesome. In March. Now, if you're starting doing some math mid-March, all of a sudden you re-break your foot. And I had surgery on my foot this time and put a big screw in it. So not only am I rehab, I have not run really in for essentially a six month period. Teddy, I want I want to give you one guess when I was cleared to take the boot off my foot and to begin moving around. Uh, June one at eight a.m. <laughs> June one, two thousand nine, and I ran. And when we were at that point, Schmidt and. There was a freshman group, and they had kind of probably learned their lesson from your miserable experience. But we tested. Now, we did the awful warm-up, and I thought I was going to die, but we tested on our first day. And if my memory serves me correctly, I ran a 5.8. With a little bit of a I had not, I had not run for I mean I'd not run for multiple weeks in essentially six months and the first day I was cleared to take the boot off my foot and to start moving around I was working out with Jerry Schmidt wow I I just remember the feeling like the way he looked at me that way it was I I had never felt so worthless in my life like he just he was disgusted by my presence yeah. And so was I. I was like, oh, this is bad. So he, he was so disappointed in me, he ended up throwing a 45-pound plate at me in the weight room. <laughs> it didn't hit me. It didn't hit me. So it's good fine. Thing, me and Schmitty are good. But At that point, I felt like uh, the right thing in the movie would it should have hit your foot and broke it again. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been. But I spent that entire year trying to catch up trying to get my calf and you know my quad and like everything on that injured side back and I was already pretty slow and dude my my freshman summer is the most miserable I've ever been in my entire life there was a point in time where and at this point the south end zone has expanded we're running up that bad boy mm-hmm. and I threw up every time we did stadiums every single time so much to I couldn't eat like penne pasta with Alfredo and chicken for like two years because I threw it up so violently one time running up the South Stadium. What group were you in? Were you a morning group guy or? I was, we started in the morning and then we moved up with the tight ends. We were at like, if I remember correctly, we were at like 2.30 in the afternoon. That's so awful. Worst time. Worst the, ang- time. the anxiety like three o'clock time. of. The only good thing about being a in the afternoon is you get to see what everyone had already done that day. Yes. And I, like the level of anxiety going to sleep and not knowing what the next day holds and then trying to like text everyone and figure out like what was it? What how'd they do? Did what anyone do we got? get kicked out? What do we got? It's like what happened? And and usually it's oh my god, it's the worst thing ever. Like every day is the new worst day ever. It's amazing. I, I one funny thing is that so my freshman oh. that that summer and I think it was maybe like the next Monday or Tuesday we had we were running sprints up the ramps but we didn't run all the way to the top we were just running there's one ramp I think it's the it's the second ramp is like really long 
and because the first one's like a short one and then you have a really long second one so we were just sprinting that one over and over and for whatever reason that day all of the coaches were there for the workout or watching us run and I remember we were like running over to the stadium I had no idea like what we were doing and uh one of the older guys on the team's like, I heard you're fast. We're about to find out how fast you are. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. So we then we're running the ramps. I'm like, okay, I, all right. Now we're doing something I, I've got. And I remember the first one, I got first place. The second one, I got last place. The third, fourth, fifth, however we went. I mean, we went on forever. I got last place, and I got last place by further and further back with every sprint that we ran. It was amazing. <laughs> it's like, what happened to me? I used to be fast, and now I'm broken. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, those stories, still, still so great. All right, Ted. Episode 14 in the books. We'll have a new podcast that will drop Thursday morning. Just a reminder, you can hear Teddy from 2 to 6 on Sports Talk 1400. You can hear me on SiriusXM Big 12 Radio, channel 375. We hope you all have a tremendous week. Until next time, we appreciate you all for listening. And do what you always do, Oklahoma. Take care of each other. Just one more time